Well, welcome back, church family. So fun to see you visiting with each other. Uh, I'm really excited this morning to introduce our speaker. Uh, if you're new with us, this is our second and final two-for-one Sunday of the summer, which means that we have uh, two different preachers this morning, one at 9 and one at 1045. And uh, I'm excited to introduce Aaron Crenshaw to you in just a moment. Uh, Aaron has been here for about seven years. He's been married for just over a year, and Aaron has served, that's right, a little shout out. Uh, he has served in a, a variety of areas, led, uh, done discipleship ministry, and um, is a man of integrity and a man of his word, of God's word, and uh, really excited to hear uh, what the Lord has laid on Aaron's heart this morning as he brings us God's word. So would you please give Aaron Crenshaw a warm welcome. Aaron? Good morning, everyone. Uh, if you've been with us this summer, you'll know that we've been going through a series on the Psalms titled, Words That Know Me. There are a lot of Psalms. None of them have been included in the Bible without a purpose. So sometimes it's worth asking not only what does this passage tell us, but also why did God choose to tell us this? Why are these the words that we need to hear what do these words know about me that I might not know about myself? We'll be reading Psalm 130 this morning. It's short, eight verses, and if you're like me, it's easy to gloss over, not just because it's short and the book of Psalms is long, uh, but also because it conveys a very familiar message, that we are sinners and God is our Redeemer. It's the gospel message. And if you're like me and you've been a Christian for a while, sometimes the good news of the gospel starts to feel like old news. You've heard it all before. But the Psalms are more than just poetry. They're songs. And like any song, really, they're meant to be sung repeatedly. So there's going to be something in here that we're meant to hear repeatedly, that we're meant to be reminded of. And we're going to spend this morning trying to figure out what that is. So without further ado, let me read to you Psalm 130. Out of the depths I call to you, Lord. Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord. I wait and put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for there's faithful love with the Lord, and with him is redemption in abundance, and he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. Okay, so structurally, this psalm is arranged in four couplets, which our Bibles have broken down into eight verses. We're not exactly sure who wrote it or what their circumstances were, though there are many theories. Dr. Dave, who used to teach here, has an audio series at growingchristians.org, and the theory he leaned on was that this was written by King Hezekiah, a Jewish king about 700 years before Christ, who, when he was about to die in his prime without an heir, called out to God, and God extended his life. Regardless of authorship, 
we're told what we most need to know about the psalm's context at the start of the first couplet. Out of the depths I call to you, Lord. There are a few images that come to my mind when I read that first verse. A miner trapped at the bottom of a shaft, an astronaut stranded on a lonely moon, an ancient sailor being pulled to the bottom of a dark, stormy ocean. More practically speaking, most of us probably don't need to think too hard to find a time in our past or present where we have experienced the depths. And I think what really characterizes the experience of the depths is powerlessness. It's being as powerless to overcome the gravity of our sin or circumstance as the sailor or miner is powerless to throw themselves a rope. Now, I don't know what country you all live in, but I live in America. And here in America, we like to say that we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, right? And I think regardless of whether or not you're a red, white, and blue-blooded American, when we get dragged into the depths, our first tendency is to take that pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps mentality and try by sheer force of will to rise back up. Now, just on the uh, off chance you're not aware, a bootstrap is a small tagger loop, goes on the back of your boot here, helps you pull the boot onto your foot. And so when you're imagining yourself pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, what you're supposed to imagine is somebody leaning down, grabbing their bootstraps, pulling on them, and trying to achieve liftoff. It doesn't work. It's impossible to do, it's sarcastic. That's the whole point of the expression. And yet, when we're in the depths, often our hearts tend to believe that's somehow how we're supposed to get out of them. And if we fail, we're left more hopeless than before. God knows this about our hearts. So he tells us what to do in verse 2. We cry out to him. Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. When we recite this psalm, when we sing this song, we're not reminded to pull ourselves together. We're reminded to cry out to God. There's nothing wrong with putting in the work to get things back in order, to stay disciplined, to get the right therapy or medication or financial assistance or support network. But none of those things substitute the saving love of God. And we need to be reminded of this because I think we don't tend to remember to cry out to God until all other options have been exhausted. The miner's flashlight has gone out. The astronaut lost the signal. The sinking sailor doesn't know what's up and what's down anymore. It can take that sort of deeper depth where there's nothing else left to hope in to compel us to cry out to the Lord. But there is a depth deeper still. 
The psalm addresses it in verse 3. Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? At first, at least to me, the transition from verse 2 to verse 3 feels a little jarring. In the first couplet, we're talking about needing to be saved from some, frankly, ambiguous situation, and now we're talking about sin. And I think there can be a tendency to take that and go back to the first couplet and assume that the depths must always be referring to some deep personal sin or addiction, and they certainly can. I don't think verse 3 necessarily restricts our context in that way. There are many ways we can end up in the depths. But what we can say is that regardless of how we got there, by our own sin or someone else's or some combination of the two, at some point we have to ask the question, why would God save me? I think of that miner trapped in the bottom of that dark shaft now trapped in despair, wondering, am I worth coming back for? Am I even worth saving? I think our tendency, at least in our time and culture, is to tell people you're a good person, try to stay positive, you can't think like that. But the psalm doesn't shy away from asking, am I worthy of being saved? However, and this is very important, it doesn't stop there. In verse 4, we find hope. But with you, there is forgiveness, so that you may be revered. The immediate reaction when confronted by our sin is to reach out and grasp that saving hand of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 7.10 puts it like this, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. Don't stay in your grief. Don't wallow in your depths. There is nothing for you down there. And don't try to get out of your depths all by yourself. If you will cry out, God will listen. If you will cry out, God will listen. Now, if you'll let me skip to the end of the psalm, I think this uh, line of thought really crescendos in verses 7 and 8. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for there is faithful love with the Lord, and with him is redemption in abundance, and he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. That idea of redemption is more than God simply overlooking our sins. To redeem is to cover a cost. It means that God, knowing everything about you, your every imperfection, your every failure, your every shame, loved you so much that before the foundation of the world, he chose to make you, knowing that the cost of your creation meant death on a cross. And he doesn't provide just enough redemption. It's redemption in abundance. It's faithful love. And that means that you can be pulled down into the depths again and again and again, 
and God still listens when you cry out. You've consumed or lingered on something you shouldn't have again. You've let just a small little lie or piece of gossip slip out again. Something happened at home or at work or to your finances, and you've let your anger or fear take hold of you again. It is the fundamental nature of sin and of our sin-stained, broken world to ensnare us, to trap us, to lead us, drag us down, and fight to hold us in our unique, particular depths again and again and again. And yet, no matter how deep or how shallow you think your depths are, this psalm reminds us to keep crying out to God because God is our faithful rescuer again and again and again. Now, Psalm 130 doesn't just remind us that God forgives and loves and redeems us. It actually anticipates another question. Why? Why does God forgive and love and redeem us? That answer, or at least an aspect of it, is given at the end of verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. Some translations put this as so that you may be feared, and that might seem odd at first glance, though if you've spent a lot of time at church, you've probably heard that when we talk about the fear of the Lord, we're not talking about fear simply in the sense of being scared. I personally find it difficult to define exactly, and it ultimately connects to the topic of the glory of God, which is a whole sermon series in and of itself. But the best analogy I could come up with was that it's something like going to the zoo and the zookeeper coming up to you and asking, hey, do you want to meet our lion? Which I assume is just something that happens at zoos. And you've barely had a chance to say yes before you suddenly find yourself standing in front of 500 pounds of mane and teeth and muscle. And the zookeeper wouldn't have brought you in here if that lion was going to tear you to shreds. You hope. It's not a perfect analogy. But there's something about this creature that is so much more powerful than you that without word or direction demands your reverence. Much written in the Bible about the tabernacle and the temple and the Garden of Eden and Pentecost and the future descent of heaven to earth relates to God's desire that we would dwell with him and him with us. It relates to God doing whatever it takes to give us the chance to really, truly access and experience and know him. You don't really know the lion watching him through the glass. You have to get into the enclosure. If we're to know the almighty God of the universe, that means recognizing our own powerlessness 
in light of his omnipotence and majesty and greatness and perfection. And by the way, that difference between our powerlessness and his omnipotence, once you see it, once you've tasted it, it is an incredible comfort. Because it relieves from us the burden of being our own saviors and places that burden back where it belongs, in the almighty arms of our all-loving Redeemer. All right, at this point, we've looked at the first couplet, which reminds us to call on the Lord from our depths, and we've looked at the second and fourth couplets, which remind us that God is our Redeemer. And if you took just those three couplets together, you would have something that looked more or less like a complete psalm. And you might read those three couplets and say to yourself, yes, I was a sinner. I accepted Jesus into my life. I've been redeemed. And there's not much else left for me here. But then you have this third couplet. And that couplet, in my mind, I think, really brings out an important element of how we apply this psalm to our lives as redeemed Christians. It reads, I wait for the Lord. I wait and put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. There's something slow, even serene, about this couplet. Repetition in the Bible is often used to emphasize a point, and some commentators I found suggested that is the case here. A number of others I found pointed out that in this particular case, that repetition, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning, that repetition causes you to pause, to linger, to ponder. The very structure of the verse itself encourages you to wait. What does it actually mean to wait for the Lord? Well, the picture of the watchman gives us an idea, though it's important, I think, to view that picture in the context of the surrounding passage. Whatever we're waiting for, however we're waiting for it, it's somehow connected with our afflictions and our sins. Regarding our afflictions first, the answer to me seems pretty straightforward. To wait on the Lord is to rely on him to carry us through our suffering. John 16.33, Jesus tells his disciples, you will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. Paul writes in Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. The struggles of this life are temporary. Something far better awaits us in eternity. I'll point out, though, that just because the answer is straightforward, that doesn't make its application easy. It's one thing to say our struggles are temporary when we're comfortable. It's another to live that way when we're in the thick of it. And so, we must be reminded in the easy times and the hard times that our God loves us, 
that he knows every ounce of our pain, our losses, our illnesses, the weight of our responsibilities, the times we were ridiculed, the times we were abandoned. And we must be reminded that there is always hope. Paul writes in Romans 5 that we can boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. God is at work in our afflictions. Let him work. Now, regarding our sins, I think in my mind at least, things get murkier. Once you become a Christian, or even if you've grown up in the church, there's a strong tendency after we've been overcome by sort of an initial wave of grace to settle into one of two patterns, legalism or licentiousness. We've talked about this sort of thing from the pulpit here before, so I'll only discuss them briefly. In the legalistic approach, we become very concerned with following the rules and making sure others are following the rules. And we follow that to such an extent that we are either in a constant state of distress about our own inability to achieve the standard, or we've convinced ourselves that we're so good at this that we go blind to our own deficiencies. In the licentious approach, we justify our sinful behavior by trying to redefine what is and isn't sin, or we resign ourselves to our sin. And we tell ourselves, it's okay, I can do this just this one more time. Christ has it covered. There is a disconnect in every Christian's life, in one way or another, between the example set by the Jesus the Christian professes to believe in and the way the Christian actually lives. At their core, both legalism and licentiousness are ways we try to deal with the matter of our ongoing sin on our own terms. The Apostle John describes this struggle for us. This passage is going to be a little long, but hang with me. Starting in 1 John 1.6, he writes, We say, we have fellowship with him, that's God, and yet we walk in darkness. If, sorry, let me start that one over. If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter two, my little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself fights for our sins, and not only for ours, but for those of the whole world. 
We talk a lot in church circles about the concept of sanctification, or more specifically, I'm going to be talking about progressive sanctification. That, in a nutshell, is the idea that the elimination of sin from our lives is an ongoing, lifelong process. While initial salvation looks something like God diving down with that rope to save that sinking sailor, the ongoing sanctification might look a bit more like the watchman. There's an active component, the watchman's vigilance, the watchman's endurance, looking into the night, fighting off sleep. But there's also a passive component. There is a lot of waiting. That watchman is just as powerless to make the sun rise faster as the person in the depths is powerless to throw themselves a rope. But now the powerlessness isn't a problem. Because no matter how long the night is, no matter how strong the desire is to fall asleep, and no matter how often the watchman fails at his duties, that sun is still going to rise again. John makes it clear, we are supposed to stop sinning. We are to walk in the light. But John also makes this clear. We will still sin. The heart of the person saved by Christ doesn't need to be a slave to sin any longer. But even if our sins no longer have a hold on us, our hearts have a strong tendency to continue holding on to our sins. Maybe I know that I can trust God to provide, but my boss told me to cut this corner just this one time, and I really could use a good pay raise this year. Or maybe I know that God is the God of all comfort, but I've got this other thing that maybe isn't good for me, but it brings me comfort too, or at least makes me feel good in the moment, and I just really want to give in to it right now. I know what the right thing to do is, and there's this part of me that really wants to do the right thing, but there's another part of me that really wants to do something else. Paul himself writes in Romans 7, I do not understand what I am doing. Because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. And if you're anything like me, there's something that can be frustrating and discouraging about that constant struggle between our godly desires and our worldly ones. And sometimes you feel like, I should be better at this by now. Most of you have probably heard of a medical condition divers can get called decompression sickness or the bends. If you'll recall your high school physics course, yes, we're doing physics in church now. If you take some amount of gas, like air, and you put it under pressure, it compresses. And if you relieve that pressure, it expands. You and I have air in our bodies, and it doesn't just stay in our lungs, it finds its way all throughout the body. When you crack your knuckles, 
that sound that you might hear is the sound of air bubbles in your joint fluid popping or collapsing. Now, a diver going deep underwater will typically bring with them an oxygen tank filled with compressed air, a scuba tank. That's the only way you're going to bring all the oxygen you need on your dive. You have to compress it in a tank. But the diver doesn't breathe that compressed air directly out of the tank. There's a device in between called a regulator. The job of the regulator is to adjust the pressure of that air to a level that's safe to breathe. And when you dive, and the pressure of the ocean increases as you go down, the pressure of the air the regulator delivers to you has to be the same pressure as the ocean pressure around you so that you can breathe properly. And that's all fine and good. But when you start coming up, and the ocean pressure starts to reduce, all that air that was compressed to match the water pressure, that compressed air that's made its way all over your body, starts to expand. And if you ascend too quickly, that air can start expanding in places like your shoulders, your elbows, your knees, and that expansion can cause intense pain, it can cause permanent damage, and in some cases it can outright kill you. The solution to that problem is a very controlled, calculated ascent back to the surface. It's a process that has to be slow enough to let the more highly compressed air circulate out of your body so that as you ascend back to the surface, it gets replaced with air that is gradually less and less compressed. I think when it comes to our sanctification, we have a tendency to want to get from our depths up to that surface as fast as possible and as admirable as that is, the simple reality is that the process of the Spirit rooting out sin in our lives is slow and gradual, and I suspect that's for our benefit. The roots of our sin run far deeper than any of us realize or care to admit. I don't want you to take that as an excuse to stay in your sin. What I'm hoping is that you'll simply remember that when it feels like you're underwater and you're looking up to the surface and you can't see that sunlight and it feels like you're not getting any closer, please be patient. Psalm 130 reminds us that God's love is faithful. Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So when you do fail, don't ignore it, don't minimize it, and certainly try not to let it drag you back down to the depths. Remember to cry out to the Lord. Seek him in your afflictions. Confess to him your sins. We all have a lot of problems to work through, even if we don't realize it. We must let him take his time with us. Watch for him with the same longing and quiet confidence 
of the watchmen waiting for the sunrise. God's work is never early, or is it late? His sun rises precisely when he intends it to. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the sins of the struggles of this life can be so frustrating. It can pull us down again and again, and sometimes it's hard to look up. It's hard to even remember to look up. Lord, keep our minds and our hearts turned toward you. Give us the reminders that we need to remember that we don't have to do this on our own. Teach us and remind us to cry out to you. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Grace and peace be with you.